My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. I am the, well, I'm the co-host of the KingCast and I am joined as always by my devastatingly handsome co-host, Mr. Eric Vespi. Say hello, Eric. Hello, Eric. Excellent. Uh, And we have an extremely exciting guest today. I'm Super excited to talk to this dude. Uh, he is the writer-director behind 2018's Possum, which has my vote for one of the best horror films of the past decade. You've seen him in shows such as The Office, Life's Too Short, Toast of London, a number of others, but he is perhaps best known as the co-creator and star of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which remains one of the funniest goddamn things I have ever seen in my life. Please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Matthew Holness. Say hello, Matthew. Hello. Thank you very much. That's a very, very, very nice welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Very pleased to be here. We are super jazzed to talk to you. Um, yeah, I, I figure, you know, the next best best thing to having Stephen King on the podcast is having Garth Marenghi on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I guess we should start, as we always do, uh, asking you what is uh, what's your what's your King origin story? What what got you reading Stephen King in the first place? Well, it's interesting because, you know, here, here in the UK, I guess it, I, I don't think there was a particular a particular book or anything like that. But I think it was more really just seeing his name on the books whenever I went to the supermarkets. It was I was just a very aware of King King and Herbert. So you'd go into a supermarket and you know you would just see these incredible looking paperbacks with King and Herbert. And I was you know quite young when I was sort of seeing these things. I don't really know exact. I think Cujo was my first. King that I read. I got it for Christmas one year um, and I had this wonderful, I think it was, it might have been a New English Library edition and it had this brilliant illustration of a, of a child reeling from this, you know, snarling dog and it was absolutely horrific and I and I remember... I remember reading it, but but I was quite young, I think, when I read it, and I think a lot of the stuff I was I was just quite shocked <laughs> by some of the explicit, yeah. explicit scenes. But you know, it, oddly enough, growing up, um, it, it, there were there was less restrictions um, age wise on 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 what you were you know allowed to be reading, and I think that you know certainly at school we you know we all passed around our James Herbert books and Stephen King books and. Um, so yeah, for as long as I can remember, really, King has been, you know, part of the wallpaper, I guess, in terms of, you know, the, the horror that I, that I grew up with. And certainly it was just visually, it was seeing these incredible looking paperbacks that, you know, and that's the lost art of, of publishing. I think the, the kind of the, the paperback cover art, you know, it's a real shame. I think that, you know, we, we don't see those sorts of covers for King paperbacks now because they were, they really did reel me in. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and uh, especially given how frequent a touchstone this is with people we talk to. I think almost everyone we've spoken to is like, well, the covers reeled me in. Like mm. everyone loved those covers, you know. It's also interesting what you were saying about how you know, people might care about parents and teachers might care about you watching a a horror movie, you know, that you know that's uh graphic, but like nobody really batted an eye on on books. Yeah. Uh, I remember there in in middle school 
I, I had begun to really heavily read King. Um, my first book was Cujo, like yours, and and I decided I was going to read everything King wrote. And I remember being in middle school and going to my middle school library, and they had a Stephen King section in my middle school. We're talking like seventh, seventh, eighth grade, <laughs> yeah, you know, thing. And that, I mean, that's where I found Dark Tower for the first time was 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 in there. You know, that's how I found. You know, uh, it, it wasn't a complete section, but it had a good dozen titles, you know, which, uh, you know, the me being a very slow reader, uh, you know, I was able to space out among uh, those two years in middle school. It, it's interesting that, you know, I, I, I can remember reading King going into my A-level English. So this would have been, you know, probably 17 going on 18, I think. Um, and I was reading it at the time. And I remember it was frowned upon by my English teachers. They, they sort of let, you know, line the class of, of potential A-level students up and they say, well, what, are you, what, what are you reading at the moment? And I think, you know, everyone else was, you know, reading their first Thomas Hardy and all these sorts of things. And I sort of very, very confidently went, oh, I'm reading Stephen King's It. And, I, you know, you, you could have heard a, you know, a pin drop. It was, it was like, and it, it, was, it was frowned upon. But oddly enough i mean i that's for example a novel i keep coming back to over and over again and i and i do think it's you know a, a profoundly uh moving and intelligent horror novel about life you know and about growing up and it's it's odd it's it's like that book has stayed with me and i don't think i've read thomas hardy since not to say that thomas hardy is is you know <laughs> not, not a bad author but i think if we're going for ones that you know really that i you know that king king is always one an author i come back to absolutely and that stigma around King has long since dropped. I remember it being like that back back in the day that he was sort of looked at as, as as lesser than. But I think you know at this point he's more than acquitted himself. No one's no one's taking cheap shots at King anymore. <laughs> you know, I think maybe, now, maybe with the endings or needing an yeah. editor. Now it's more just the populist angle, you know, where the snobbery comes in, where it's like he's he's just a popular author, not not that he's a horror author. It's a little bit like uh, the Spielberg evolution, where you know he Spielberg was for you know the longest time just the populist, you know, filmmaker, and um, it would get knocked on for sentimentality and you know emotional manipulation. But you know now all those movies are looked on as as uh, classics, not just you know successful films. And it's interesting because you keep coming back to King and he's he's always surprising you, I think. I mean, I, I hadn't read Roadwork f- before. Mm. I, th- I read it about three or four years ago and I was just absolutely shocked at what a, a, a kind of downbeat, moving story that was. And, and, you know, whilst it was, you know, it was very much a kind of Stephen King in, in, in style, it was something very, very different from anything else I'd read by him. And, you know, it was one of the most one of the most moving books I think I've ever read. And, uh, you know, it's, and I was just so surprised because I thought I, I kind of knew, I thought I had a handle on, 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 you know, most of, of the stuff. And, and I was just surprised by that went, wow, I, I, I didn't think that, you know, that King was capable of this. It was like, it was just such a surprise to me. That's a good transition in, into our title actually, because that was a Bachman book and Bachman was King pseudonym. And this book is all about, uh, this book that we're discussing today is all about an author and his uh, his pen name. Yes, is Matthew. It- which 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 novel did you choose and why? I chose the dark half, and I chose it because I think you know it. it I suppose in my own career, writing career, I'm, I've always been obsessed with writers and I've always been obsessed with the act of writing. And I think for this reason alone, The Dark Half has always kind of stood out for me. I mean, there are so many stories and books that, 
where King, you know, writes about writers. And I think that's, that's always been, you know, of great interest, but also very influential because, you know, as I say, I've, I've written about writers and that because I think probably because I'd read King write about writers so many times as well. And I find the, it's just an interesting um, area where you know you know what what writing is what 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 part of our brains do we access when we when we kind of you know d- d- start writing anything i guess and i think king has probably covered that territory more than any other uh writer i can think of and it, and what's interesting is that he keeps going back to it or certainly for a period and particularly at this point in time he wrote so much stuff in this area um and i think it just becomes a, a very interesting area to kind of wonder you know what what was what was kind of making him tick why you know obviously there are there are lots of reasons which i'm sure we you know we're going to be going into but just it's i, I find it I, I find that fascinating that you know what the world that we we know and the world that we exist in and the world that the writer creates for us and how those two kind of you know in in you know how they exist, how they coexist together. Before we dive into the the story, I think we'd be remiss not to to talk about Garth Marenghi real quick here. Yes, <laughs> um, true. Uh, because I mean, I remember when I was first introduced to the series, like the re- the reason people got me to watch it because they're like, dude, this is like this guy's riffing on on Stephen King, and like you watch it, and it's like the worst possible version of Stephen King in the world. Um, uh, doing this, uh, like just. How much of your um, love of King kind of went into that? I think a huge amount did. I mean, we we based I think we based the character of Garth on on a lot of different writers, and you know, it it really is an amalgam, really, of of, of so many different types of of horror writer that that were around at that period. But I think King, you know, he was always it's it's odd because you know if you've growing up in that period growing up in the 80s where king was everywhere and it really was such a a huge horror boom and and you know we look back now and and i you know i regard it myself as being very lucky to have grown up at that time because we kind of experienced that whole paperback industry the horror industry you know it it was just magical really if you're into you know horror it 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 was a fantastic time to to be kind of you know encountering these these novels for the first time but i think king was such a big uh, influence in, in so many areas and and he was just always around and he was a very good self promoter and he was very entertaining and i think just his look the kind of this, you know when you first sort of see him as a child you think who is this sort of strange slightly nerdy looking man that you know you kind of yeah. kind of identify with particularly if you're into those sorts of books it's 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 nice to have a figure that you know you, you who is interesting just because he's just he seems quite odd but i think that you know when we started doing garth i think there was something very funny about i had i tell you what it was i had a vhs my brother had bought a vhs which i think was called stephen king's world of horror and had a load of interviews with king which were i still don't really know how and why they came about but i must i guess he's done so many of them but i don't know what they were originally intended for but they were just these fantastic you know, uh, late 1980s or mid 1980s interviews with King, where he he seemed to be slightly, slightly, you know, heightened. It was, it, you know, yeah, kind of slightly <laughs> mad in a way. And he would just be talking about, you know, wanting to, you know, the person who cuts you up in the road. You know, you want to go out there and you want to grab them, and you know. And it was just, yeah. it was seeing that. I think. And I. I just found that very kind of funny anyway um, that, you know, for once you, you would have a horror writer who is just being quite openly vocal about, you know, doing what there's, cause there's something quite childlike. I think in King, when you first encounter him as when you're younger, 
I think he does appeal to children. Obviously, he he drew on all those EC um, Tales of the Crypt magazines, the comics, and I think there is something quite that appeals to children, and and uh, certainly in the in that early period, the early kind of horror boom period. Um, and I and and there and there's something about that that is very was always very appealing. And I think it was just having grown up with it and um, thinking, well, you know, if you're going to do something about a horror writer. King is kind of the ultimate. He's the he is the he's he is the king of it. You know, you've got to have him. He is the great master, masterful sort of figure that you can then base a lot of other stuff around. Um, I think it was just inevitable, really, that he, that he would kind of ha- have some presence. I mean, it was very odd because when the show came out. Um, we we had kind of been watching Richard and I, Richard and I, Wadi and I had been watching uh, Lars von Trier's The Kingdom, and oddly yeah. enough, we kind of based Dark Place around that, you know, as a kind of a, a, par- a, a parody of that sort of show. And then when Dark Place actually came out, it was exactly at the time we had no idea that this this was also being made. But Kingdom Hospital came out, so we had that strange, you know. Um, yeah, a, a moment where, we, where King had kind of done a hospital thing, and we'd done that, and it was it was almost like we we sort of knew what was in the pipeline. We didn't at all, but <laughs> but it was kind of it was nice. But yes, I mean, you know, I'm I'm slightly waffling a bit about this, but yes, him and and I think you know certainly over here, writers like James Herbert, you know, there's just just lots of writers that we just grew up with. They they were always there, and it's a bit like growing up watching Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. They were just you know they were the big figures. They were they were in a sense they were bigger than their books. Yeah, well, it's interesting that that uh, the thing about King is that I mean, he he was a rock star that was an author. King did, you know, kind of establish a brand in a weird way by being so out there by doing American Express commercials and, you know, he he, you know, he made Riding around you know, on a motorcycle and shit. Yeah, well, and he, but he was also like, you know, he was uh, he made a movie and the trailer for the movie is him talking about it like Alfred Hitchcock, you know, where he is the draw, you know, and that it, it's it's he's for sure the the Hitchcock of 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 authors, and you know, in more ways than one. But just you know, especially in in his ability to make his face and his name, you know, and his his kind of weird voice, you know, his his thick Coke bottle glasses, you know, it all it all became part of his identity and and became iconic in a weird way. While we're on the topic, I've got to ask if Matthew, are you familiar with Todd McFarland and Spawn? Do you know what that is? No, no, I'm not. Okay. Todd McFarlane is an American comic book artist and he takes himself extremely seriously. And he is the guy that created a comic book called Spawn, which was made into a legendarily awful movie in 1997 or so. 96, Mm -hmm. 97. Anyway, in the mid nineties, there was a, uh, an animated series based on Spawn on HBO and Todd McFarlane himself would appear at the top of every episode and deliver like a monologue in what was designed to look like a very uh, creepy and foreboding studio space where he was doing his comic book art, apparently in the dark and shadows for no reason. But it's very self-serious. It's very like him, you know, making, uh, you know, very uh, sinister sounding pronouncements. It That really reminds me of the intros on, on Merengue. So I'm surprised <laughs> you're not familiar because it's so goddamn similar. I'll have to, yeah, I will have to seek those out. I mean, oddly enough, when we were making this, it was about the time when, um, uh, the, you know, DVDs and the, the whole idea of introductions to things, you know, reflecting on things you'd made. 
you know, you put on any DVD and there'd be a recorded introduction to something. I remember there was a very, very cheap um, range of videos um, that, that took copyright-free films, films that were in the public domain, and, and, and packaged them up. But they'd hired Tony Curtis to record these introductions to them with a few <laughs> anecdotes. And they were the, some of the funniest things I've ever seen. And, of course, we'll never see that footage again because I, I imagine all these VHS videos are, you know, <laughs> landfill now but they were just wonderful and i just thought i love that i love that that sort of you know pomposity but it does come from as you say the whole Af- alfred hitchcock way of you know promoting something the william castle kind of thing and and king was absolutely uh, you know he, he was just spot on with that stuff he he and, and as i say he appealed to younger people he appealed to you know kid kids at school i think and and i think he was always you know the 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 kind of the 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 cheeky guilty secret of loads of schoolboys. Yeah, have you got your king? You know, we will talk about the the novel. Oh, did you? You know, what happened with that? Oh, you know, this scene's absolutely disgusting. Read this. It was just all that stuff. But oddly enough, you gr- you grow older and you and you come back to the books and you realise that you know that is just a very very simple basic level of of King's horror as such. You know, and you come back and you realise how I found this coming back to King. Having done Dark Place, having made that years later, revisiting books that I'd kind of read around that time. And I I had no, you know, it was almost like I was reading a different book again. It was, they just felt, you know, having grown older and, and you know, the, the books were just uh, appealing to emotions that you just couldn't have felt at that age. But, you know, yeah. when, and that's why it is so fantastic because yeah. it just, it captures that. It captures, you know, you can read it when young and then you read it totally different when you know differently when when you're older and you can kind of appreciate the subtleties and the emotional nuances far more no but i had the exact same experience i've i've already um mentioned it once on on the podcast but uh you know i read it when you know when i was the age of the kids and then like i read it uh, i decided it was time for a reread in my adult life and i realized as i was reading it that i was the exact age of the adults you know and so I, I it, it was, it, it became, you know, a, a different point of view, uh, uh, certainly when you get to the, the, the very, uh, end sex scene, um, of, of the story th- that, that read much differently and creepily as, as an adult, but, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, no, so we should, uh, dive into dark half, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting book you know, in, in that, I mean, King at his best puts a lot of himself in the, his kids, his characters, his lead characters. And he, you know, very famously, you know, Jack Torrance in The Shining is, you know, is kind of like, you know, King's evil id, you know, the, the worst case scenario of, of King, you know. And as you mentioned, like he very constantly has his protagonist, you know, writers. And I think that that's, you know, very much, you know, his way of, of injecting himself into into the story uh is that something that you you clocked when you read dark half for the first time was like you know this is thad beaumont and you know and um george stark are are kind of the two halves of of uh, stephen king absolutely um and i think it's interesting there's a story by lp hartley um which i read in a uh, Lady Cynthia Asquith ghost story um, anthology from I think the 1950s or the 1960s. The story called WS, and it's strange because it is almost a microcosm of the dark half. It's almost exactly the same narrative that plays out in short form. Um, the idea of uh, a figment of the writer's imagination, a character from his own book, uh, coming back uh, to, from the death, from from wherever the, the character has has you know been sent to, coming back, stalking the writer to take revenge for basically you know uh, it, it, destroying them or, or putting all the dark side of the writer's um, psych- psychology 
into that character and then kind of abandoning it. And it's interesting because that says to me that this is something that must occur to so many writers. And I think that what's what's great about the dark half is i mean it's 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 strange when you realize how many uh, how much of it comes from real life anyway that you know we, we when we'll talk about you know richard bartman and 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 that that side of 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 king's writing but i've i think you can't and yeah i don't think you can avoid looking at that biographical side of things you know i think this book in a similar way to pet cemetery i think i think probably reveals as much as King would want us <laughs> to know about, you know, the, the, how his mind is ticking when he's writing. I think it's a very honest book. It does, it does basically say, you know, that you know the act of writing is essentially, um, you know, it's an act of of. Uh, a, I, don't, I don't, you know, it, it is something that where you reveal parts of yourself that you will not necessarily reveal in company to family it's a very private kind of uh, process um but in order to particularly to write horror stories uh, you know where does that stuff come from and i think even writers don't really want to know exactly where that stuff comes from but it comes from somewhere nonetheless and i think it's a why this book is so great is that it, it it's just very honest about that and it and it is it it, it kind of is, it dares to sort of say yes you know there is something you know intrinsically uh, a bit immoral or amoral about the act of writing at times. It's interesting you say that because in going back and reading about this book uh, for this episode of the show, I clocked a kind of interesting thing in that this is the first book that was published after King got sober. The The book before that was The Tommyknockers mm. and the novel before that was Misery. And I think you can sort of look at these as an unofficial thematic trilogy that sort of timed itself out around a, a major life event for him, which was getting sober in that misery is a book about fandom versus the creator. And then the Tommy knockers is about the creator versus his own demons. Whereas the dark half is just the creator versus himself. And then it ends with, you know, him killing the dark part of himself off. I mean, I might be reading too much into that, but I think there's, I think there's a bit of a through line there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the it's interesting that i think these he wrote while he was writing dark half i think he also wrote secret window secret garden at around the same time and that's in, interestingly oh, an, that's almost an additional um you know part of that trilogy that you that you're you're sort of talking about there there's something that slips in around there i think it is in there i think it was around that time and it's interesting because that also covers the same territory at a, at a, as a slightly different angle. And it's, totally. it's odd. It was, it, it was obviously something that, you know, you, you know, there's only so much we could ever really know about, you know, what's really going on in a writer's head and, you know, but there was clearly something there that was, that was more than just creating stories and characters. Eric, why don't, why don't you tell us about Richard Bachman or the people that might not be familiar with what happened around the time that Bachman got revealed to, Public. Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm sure that you know if you're listening to a Stephen King podcast, you probably have an idea of what the dark half is. Um, if you don't, the real quick summary is that there's a, a writer who has a pseudonym and he's published a bunch of like really you know violent crime stories under the name uh, George Stark, and he uh, that is the su successful part of you know of uh, of his career, um, and he is outed by somebody who figures out uh, that he has been writing under a different 
different name and that uh, George Stark doesn't exist. And uh, he decides to uh, go public with it and kills kills off the uh, the fictional author and the fictional uh, pseudonym uh, isn't super happy with that and comes back uh, in a physical form to uh, wreak havoc and uh, uh, on this person's life, uh, you know, with the ultimate goal of of um, of kind of absorbing, you know, becoming the the dominant uh, personality, right? You know, that mirrors his real life work. He King, you know, obviously wrote under a pseudonym uh, Richard Bachman. And he published like a lot, almost all of his darker stories were, uh, were put under the Richard Bachman banner. King's not known obviously for his, his good endings, not good endings, but his uh, happy endings, um, all the time. Um, Cujo is a, is a prime example. Pet Cemetery is another example. Uh, he wasn't afraid of that, but Richard Bachman's where he kind of let his hair down and, and, uh, a lot of his early work, Rage, Road Work, The Running Man, The Long Walk, uh, and then Thinner, which was the book that was coming out whenever somebody figured out his uh, his secret, and so all all that informed you know the the basis for for this novel. Um, in in real life, uh, what happened? It was a a, a Washington D.C bookstore clerk who who just kind of you know read both Richard Bachman and Stephen King and was like hey these these are kind of similar and he ended up doing some research and he like went to the library of congress and found the publisher documents that listed Stephen King as the copyright holder on on the first book rage uh, after that king had his uh, agent Kirby McCauley um listed as as the actual rights holder but that wasn't you know that was enough to uh, figure it out, but uh, unlike in this story, whenever um, uh, this uh, clerk, his, whose name was Steve Brown, figured it out, um, like he kind of con, he he wasn't trying to blackmail the author or trying to get anything out of it. He he just was like, oh, this is something neat I found, and he sent it to the publisher, going, hey, I think that you know it's out, <laughs> it's going to get out that uh, your boy is uh, Richard Bachman. <laughs> and uh, two weeks later, he got a phone call from Stephen King saying, cool, you caught me, and. You know, there had been like, you know, some some rumblings of uh, of this that had bubbled up, but nothing had ever uh, solidified before this. And he's like, well, how about we do, you know, I give you an exclusive interview and we just, you know, put Richard Bachman, you know, to bed and uh, blow this out. And uh, the guy wrote a, a Washington Post article that was, you know, full of, you know, quotes from Stephen King himself. And the, the difference being like King was super on board with it and was like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, you know, th- this is. Uh, he, I think he said that he found it odd that that he was starting to write stories as Richard Bachman, where previously the other ones that were released were um, his older stuff, like uh, Rage in particular was something he wrote as, as like an angry young man, like in the early seventies, and that's the the one that he uh, has let fall out of print because it's all about a school shooting. So, did the guy catch him before or after Thinner? It was before Thinner came out that that it's uh that he was caught i believe i was actually kind of looking at that um i do know that that it while thinner uh which was the first richard bachman hardback was out that's when king was um unmasked essentially and of course that became the first richard bachman (laughs) uh story to uh hit the new york times bestseller 
uh, list because of that. But what's crazy is that um, there had been an escalation in terms of popularity. Most Richard Bachman stuff went out there and like disappeared. Nobody cared about it. They were all, you know, pulpy um, paperbacks. But uh, Thinner was the first hardback. It was getting a real advertising campaign behind it. And uh, the next book that uh, King was going to release as Richard Bachman was the one he was writing at the time. And it was a little book called Misery. So if he hadn't been figured out before then, you know, Misery would have for sure, you know, everybody would have, would have figured it out on the, on that one. So I'm surprised because I would think it would be thinner that the would be the one where someone caught him. Because thinner in my mind is the one that's most Stephen King-like to me yeah all the well i mean i don't think that's what i don't think that's the one that steve brown was reading when he figured it out i I, but um but yeah i mean based on what i've read like i feel like a lot of the people that were like working at the publisher that put out thinner was already like like you know this guy's this guy writes a whole lot like Stephen King. I think there's even a, a, a critic quote in Thinner. thinner uh, one of the reviews or something for the book was saying this is what uh, uh, Stephen King would write if he could write. <laughs> Matthew, if you were writing under a pseudonym and then you got caught like this, do you think you – I guess you would have to have a reason to be doing that in the first place. I was going to ask if you think you'd be mad about getting caught. Oh, I think I would be. Yeah, I think, you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I it would be it would be wonderful to be in that position for a start. But <laughs> there we are. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, if when you write something, I think you are very, you know, it is a it is a very uh, it's a you know, it's a personal act. It is something that is very close to you, I think. And, and you only kind of let go of, I, I would I suppose, you know, whatever you do, whether you, you know, write stories or novels, I guess, or, you know, make films, it's very, certainly with when I make those things, they are very close personal projects. And, you know, it, it you have to feel like you're in the right place to kind of let them go and move on to the next thing. And I think all the while that you've, you've got something that you're working on, you know, you, it is a, it, it is almost feeling like, you know, it, it, it is a slight violation to have people even know about it sometimes I think you know it's it's just that thing and I would imagine that if he had you know that facility to to produce those books that were um that, that he was you know very comfortable with how they were being marketed and presented and if he, you know I can imagine that would be yeah quite quite a ter- terrible shock I think to the system I, I, I would imagine you would feel quite angry that but at the same time you know there is you know, you've, he had to expect that the, the, the chances were there that that was going to happen <laughs> at yeah, some point. I think he was pretty easy going about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, he started the, the Bachman books uh, out of necessity because he's so goddamn prolific and he had written so much and his uh, his publishers just said, no, you're getting one book a year because if you do more than one book a year, you're going to oversaturate the market and hurt your brand and nobody will want to nobody can read you know you maybe two but you can't do any more than that and so that was king's like well you know fuck it i have all these stories i i want out there um you know and i that are already backlogged that i think are worth worth reading you know and you 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 read them there you know especially the long walk is one of my all-time favorite yeah things that you know that king's written and um you know under under any name and uh uh, so yeah, I mean, so in that way, he was different from his character in in uh, the Dark Half, the the Avatar, Thad Beaumont, 
which is such a, a horrible, horrible name, by the way. I get caught up on it every time. Thad Beaumont is like is like the bad guy in like a later Friday the thirteenth yeah. movie, like the, the <laughs> asshole, you know, jock that wears his, you know, sweater around his neck or something. Uh good character, bad name. Um, but Thad is embarrassed um by this work. You know, he's he's a, a serious literary writer and that's what he wants to be known for and had, you know, critical success but not financial success. And, you know, his his uh, crime novels are the ones that bring in the money, but he's embarrassed by it's not quite the case with King and Bachman. But, you know, certainly the the darkness of of the Bachman books compared to a lot of King stuff is uh, transplanted into the dark half. Sure. But what's interesting, George Stark is a pretty great stand in for Richard Bachman. When I think of Richard Bachman, I think of Stephen King only in a leather jacket with an eye patch. (laughs) You know, yes. like it's, it's a tough guy, Stephen King. Like that's yeah. that's how Bachman reads to me. So George Stark <laughs> makes all the sense in the world as as Richard Bachman. But I think there's also something going on in the book which which is interesting because I think it does relate to what we've, we've just discussed. In that, I think the book is quite refreshingly open and honest about the writer's ego as well. Because yeah. I think you know, Fad is you know, and and certainly this this you know, this also comes across quite strongly in the film, that Thad is not a particularly likable person. And I think that, you know, it's interesting. Yes, the Richard Bartman books began because, you know, they they, they said to King, we, you know, you're, you're writing too much stuff. We have to market some. I imagine there was something in, you know, King's, you know, writer's ego that thought, well, hang on a minute, why can't I have my more literary books under my own name? And I think he was probably being quite honest about himself and probably his, 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 initial you know reaction of well hang on a minute you know i i mean i can imagine that that is something that probably he got got to him slightly even if not initially but over time i would imagine that was was something and i think he's i do think he's been quite honest and put that those feelings into the novel i think he's almost played with with maybe you know his his emotional reaction to that situation and like milked every every part of it and put it into this novel i think well, Richard Bachman also represents a lot of Stephen King's insecurities. Like and another reason why he wanted to publish was because he he was always questioning whether or not he was actually good or he just got lucky, right? The Bachman releases were part of an experiment for him as well, and he's he's said this multiple times that he wanted to see if it was the quality of the work or the brand name Stephen King. Right. And he wanted to see if the Bachman books would become successful or, you know, gain an audience. Um, uh, and they didn't really. So I'm, that, that had to have hit him on, uh, uh, you know, on some some level of, you know, I mean, listen, there's a whole, you know, different ballpark of having a giant publisher advertising your book and, you know, and uh, uh, people having kind of a secure knowledge of, of uh, liking your previous stuff, you know, all that stuff, you know, aside you know, these little paperbacks that got no marketing whatsoever that were just kind of put on shelves didn't move. And they, you know, didn't move until people knew that he was Stephen King. And then suddenly, you know, they, they became bestsellers. But um, uh, but there has to be something, you know, in that experiment that hit him deeply and kept maybe fed his insecurity of his imposter syndrome or whatever, you know, that, that he had, which is crazy to me to think that he had it, you know, because he's one of the most influential voices of uh, of my life, you know, but, you know, he definitely had that. And, and I think that you see a lot of that in, in uh, Thad Beaumont. Well, you also have to remember before, the, you know, before this, the, the decade or so leading up to it, a lot of cocaine. 
You know? mm-hmm. so, yeah. He was paranoid as hell. Probably, yeah, probably a little, you know, a little more sensitive or, or hyper aware of some uh, some feelings than others. Uh, I really like this book. This is this is one of my favorite uh, King novels. Uh, I like how mean spirited it is, even though the the conceit of it doesn't really make sense to me. Like, how does George Stark crawl up out of that grave? Like, what is he like? I'm not sure I totally understand the mechanics of it or what the ultimate goal was, because I don't think that George Stark is ever going to just move into Thad's life. But I don't really care. Like it, it he sort of just makes it work through King magic. You know, you just kind of go along with it and. I like it. It's it's pulpy and kind of kind of dumb and I don't know. It's just mean. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think you know, I, I actually really liked the 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 notion of the psychopomps. You know, these sparrows. You know, taking taking mm-hmm. your soul to to another world. I actually, even though you can't really practically work out how that works, I don't think it matters. I, I found it very creepy. I, I just found it. A, and you know, with, with Stephen King novels. I suppose it's it is that it's that hotels from the crypt thing. You you sort of have a childish, not childish actually, but a childlike horror uh, reality in that there are things out there and and they're kind of things from your nightmares arrive, you know. And it's far less of a problem to me to work out the mechanics of the supernatural than maybe it is if you're writing, I suppose, a literary ghost story or something like that, where you've got to kind of think very carefully about the real world and how it relates to the real world in order to create a certain effect. I think with King, the whole universe of King is kind of, you just accept these things happen in it. Um, and it's And because it's, you know, there are so many characters in his books that are the age when you don't quite know if the supernatural exists or not you know you get to adulthood and and you know your cynicism has kicked in fully and you don't believe in that stuff but certainly when you're 15 16 you're at that last stage i think where your childhood fears still have some sort of hold over you and and i think you know that's certainly for me that was still an age where i was entertaining the thoughts of ufos and all this sort of stuff yeah and i think i think that is the reality of those books and i and i really liked the psychopomps in this i i just think they really work for me and 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 it is it's just quite creepy it's just a very dark as you said very dark novel there is this sense very similar to i think monkey's paw you know the the um, w J- Jacob's story where you know something's coming you don't know where it's coming from you know it's some other realm it's and it just leaves it to your imagination to fear what it might be and I and it has that effect of this it's it has the same effect as um, the film Death Dream as well which is mm. um, you know you, the idea of something coming from some distance and slowly making its way towards you I just think that is very well um, realized in the book and I and I think that it's that sense of doom the sense of of of, of a reckoning coming and yeah I, I I think it really works I think it really uh, it, certainly the certainly for that first half of the novel where that is most prevalent I think that it, it is in, incredibly tense well the, this I would say this book plays very well to a lot of King's strengths and that that dude knows how to set a hook like nobody's business and like the opening of of the book you know is the 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 young Thad Beaumont you know getting headaches and and uh, there's the mystery and then during his brain surgery they fucking find an eyeball you know yeah. it's like it's like you want if you read that you're like well I'm in for the rest of this this book yeah. no matter where it goes from here it also I think one of King's greatest successes um, a lot is always made of um, how he's able to paint characters and make them relatable and ground 
everything. I don't think people talk about enough how important these little detours that he takes us on are. Something jumped out to me on this reread is specifically with Frederick Clausen's landlord and his landlady um, who she, she's a character. Uh, Clausen's the one that, that uh, blackmails uh, Beaumont um, about the secret. And he ends up being one of George Stark's victims in a very brutal, you know, murder that we, we never see the murder. We find the body, but this, this character, her only narrative purpose is to find this guy's body. And we get like a five page backstory on who she is. They, you know, she, the, this guy lives in Washington, DC. And so now Dodie Eberhardt's her name. And, you know, she's an overweight woman who used to be the, you know, the, the best, uh, you know, prostitute in DC and now owns all these apartment buildings because, uh, you know, all of her very, you know, rich and powerful Johns have over the years have, you know, given her sugar daddy money and, like all, you know, all this crazy stuff. And we get all that backstory. So it's not just a scared woman in a room when she calls the police. Right. So then suddenly she's, she's a real character. You kind of understand her as if you'd known her. Absolutely. And it's effortless. You know, King's prose is so fluent. You know, you just, you, you you know, you'll be reading and and pages and pages have gone by, but you haven't noticed it like you would in any other novelist. You know, you, you just fly through these books. And I think that's, he just has that ability to just go and run with something and make it so interesting and make it so kind of uh, relatable on a, on a basic human level that you're just naturally just drawn in and, and you really believe in these characters. Absolutely. Film of course is a more unforgiving medium because it is quite literal. Uh, and so for the translation of this to screen, George Romero did this. This was uh, this was another uh, project Romero worked on after um, creep show with Stephen King came out in uh, 1993. It was actually shot way before that, but then, uh, there were some rights issues that were holding up. I think the, uh, what was it? Like the studio didn't have funding or they went and saw Yeah, them. I think the Orion were, were folding at that point, I think. Yeah, right. That's what it was. And uh, then it came out and uh, didn't exactly set the world on fire as, as in terms of uh, Stephen King adaptations. I guess it only did like $10 million at the box office, which is, of course, 1993 money, but still um, not you would what you would expect from a wide release Stephen King um, adaptation. Hmm. I mean, it, it's it's not a bad movie by by any means. It's certainly not in the Mangler, you know, area. But yeah, I mean, there's just something about the story is kind of small. It's not as flashy as you know, or as emotionally resonant. I think as a lot of King's better adaptations were. That said, I think I think Romero he, he was a little bit on fire as as a director, you know. Here, I, there there's some really great imagery that that he has uh, right off the bat. I mean, just the the practical makeup of of the uh, of the eye and the brain, yeah. You know, sequence is is instantly grabbing, and the fact that it's fucking awake and blinking and like it's crazy disturbing. And, but it's not just there. There's also some nightmare imagery, like the one that you know, jumps to mind is when Thad is having his nightmare and he sees his wife and his wife is like, got a porcelain like doll Mm -hmm. face and, and it shatters revealing a skull beneath. I mean, there's some really like good stuff in, you know, uh, visually in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. That particular sequence is, yeah, it's great. And it's, I mean, I think, I think this probably was Romero's, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a, 
Blu-ray release that's uh, that's come out of Dark Half, which has got some fascinating background information and, and documentaries. And I think this was probably Romero's first big, big studio film. You know, the budget was bigger than anything he'd worked with prior uh, to, to this film. Um, and I think there were, I think inevitably it was a difficult production because um, I think Romero, who is was used to kind of working with a, a great degree of freedom and flexibility, I think, with his own crew. I think he was in a, a, a film situation here in a, with this film with a with a method actor. Um, Timothy Hutton was in, uh, insisted on, you know, staying in character throughout the shoot. And I think, you know, it it becomes apparent from from looking at these extras that might have been a bit of a troubled production in that sense, or a difficult production, I think. How do you feel about actors that stay in character? all the time on sets. Do you have a feel, do you have an opinion of that or case by case basis? Well, I, I do have an opinion on it in the, you know, for, with my own film Possum, I mean, Sean Harris, um, who plays Philip in that film and he, he similarly uh, is a method actor and, you know, and was Philip on set. So it was a, it was a similar situation. I think that if you can find um, a way to, to, it will take time to make it work. I think it, because the trouble with that approach is that, um, you know, for for the, for an actor in who is playing method they're not necessarily aware of the time restrictions and the practicalities of having to you know how much money is disappearing every time you're doing another take and and i think that it's it i think it's hard on method actors because you know that you are required in a sense to act in snippets in in sections you know you you go great well we've got that now we need to move on but hang on i was i, was, I haven't finished doing what i was doing there that kind of thing and i think there is i think it, it takes a while to 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 get a good uh, working routine. I think with you know Romero says in this in the Blu-ray that it was only halfway through the shoot that he really started clicking with Hutton and was able to find a way to, you know, so the, a way in which they could both bring you know their best work to the project. So I think it's difficult, and I would imagine that on a film like this, like The Dark Half, <laughs> where you've got not only what a method actor doing one. <laughs> character but a second one who is the dark half of the first character i imagine that is you know a recipe for apps you know hell on earth <laughs> yeah, who are we getting on set today is it george or is it that and they had oh, separate uh, trailers George. apparently <laughs> oh yeah. my God. um there were separate trailers for um for alexis machine and for um uh thad so george stark and thad had two different trailers and and george stark's trailer was uh, filthy dirty um <laughs> lots of loud music coming out of it and uh yeah it sounds it sounds like it was you know qu- quite quite an experience <laughs> nothing i've ever heard about romero leads me to believe he would have been happy about that i feel like that he would have been so annoyed to have two trailers, like the waste of it, and then, you know, just having to deal with it. Oh, that's funny to think about him. Well, oh. he talks a little bit on the commentary about there's one scene where Thad is driving to his house by the lake and um, and a police car um, drives past. And I think all that was required was for Thad to acknowledge the police passing, look look back forward and and sort of just breathe a sigh of relief that they hadn't stopped him. And they had to close down the entire road. They had police permission. It was a huge expense, but they had to shoot it, I think, three or four times because um, Timothy Hutton just wasn't, quote, wasn't feeling it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, think, 
and, and Romero's pretty good about it because he just sort of smiles and laughs and uh, you know typical Romero but I would imagine you know the, the sheer expense of having to reshoot that sequence you know when you've got a, a, a number of other shots you need to get done at the same point you know during that morning morning's filming you know to spend all day and all the budget on on you know, the same shot three times where you just want a reaction shot. Those are the things I think the method thing becomes problematic in terms of um, just the practicalities of filming. Absolutely. Um, so I don't know. I don't know whether that is a reason why maybe this particular adaptation sometimes feels a little flat or feels a little, um, as I say, I mean, I, I was mentioned earlier that I don't think Thad is a particularly likable character in this in this film and I think it, it does take a while for you to warm to Timothy Hutton in that role and I and I I mean but that could be just a reflection of the fact that it you know the, the novel goes to that place you know the, the the character isn't necessarily you know immediately likable yeah well you know who you don't have to warm up to here is uh, Michael Rooker I I thought he was so greatly cast in this movie as a sheriff Pangborn, uh, because it's an interesting character for him and, you know, for the genre, because typically you don't get the main cop or whatever being kind of on the, you know, the side of the person under suspicion and to have Michael Rooker in that role, who is now so very well known for being the hard ass, tough, no, no bullshit guy. And, you know, here he brings some of that to Pangborn, but he also brings a lot of uh, humanity to it as well. And a lot of empathy and, and sympathy. He's, he's a softer character here. And I just think definitely looking at it in, in Rooker's, you know, filmography, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's an interesting role. For him to take at this point. Yeah. And right after Henry portrait of a serial killer too. Yeah. He was very soft and lovable in that one too. <laughs> yeah. A teddy bear. And I believe Romero wanted him to play um, Thad at one point, but the studios, you know, they just didn't think he was, he was right for, for a lead role of that, of that kind, which is, but that would have been interesting, I think, to, to have seen him in that part as well. No, oh, he his his George Stark would have been a lot scarier than Timothy Hutton with the yeah. slick back hair. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think um, in the whenever we talk about the the great Stephen King adaptations, I feel like Dark Half kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. It sounds like we're kind of arriving at the at the idea that this is sort of a middle of the road effort. You think that's about right? Or I personally think it's stronger than middle of the road. Uh, it's it's. I mean it's not one that really outside of some imagery, it's not one that I feel solidly connects, but it's not bad. Um, so I guess that is almost the very definition of middle of the road. But I, I think that as an adaptation, it, it does some very smart things. Uh, I mean, little things like they, they merge the um, George Stark's first victim with the photographer. They merge those two characters. So then it like, that is actually a very smart thing because then suddenly everybody who Stark kills um, has a direct relation to killing him, right? Instead of just a guy that Thad, you know, knows that in town that happens to be driving by when, when you know, Stark walks out of the cemetery, you know, like there's some very smart, logical things that they do on that level. And there's also obviously a very, a reverence for King uh, that Romero has. I mean, obviously they're, they're lifelong friends. Like you said, they worked on Creepshow. They were, they developed a, a, a movie and then TV series version of the stand for a decade that never happened. And I mean, they, they'd been wanting to work 
together a lot. You know, I think that, that Romero felt protective of King's stuff. And you see that in the movie, like the cop that finds the car that Stark steals, you know, has, has uh, all of the colloquialisms that, you know, that he has on the page, ask mama if she believes this, you know, all these weird shit that King always throws in that gives a color to his character. Like there's a lot of love here. So I, you know, I personally don't think that it's a hugely successful movie, but I also don't think it's bad by any means. And I think that it was, is actually, you know, does some very smart things in the uh, adaptation process. And I think it's interesting because it's one of those, it's, 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 in a way, it's it's a it's a Stephen King adaptation that is it's one of the first after the great period of of the the kind of the classic eighties King you know decade, and I think that there are there are there are parts of there are elements to it that I think they're not they're not stuck in that kind of eighties feel. It's 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 got a nineties feel to it. I, I mean, I I think in some ways this it will probably feel different as the years go by and it already is a bit i mean i i find the score for example christopher young's score mm. to it i think it's a really great score I, I, and i and it's it's a very delicate light synth but also orchestral score and i and i think it really works in places there's one particular um track which uh, on which is on the cd version um and it's it's just very I can't remember which one it is at, the, <laughs> at this point in time, but I think it's like a classic sort of Stephen King um, musical score. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of the the music to these films as well. And I like this one. I, I think it's a, it, it's very atmospheric and it's quite, um, as I say, it's delicate touch in a way. It's not one of these big blasting eighties kind of, uh, you know, big, big horror scores. And, and I like that about it. Um, I think the, it kind of looks, it does look of its time. It was interesting that I think the DOP that Romero used had worked on a lot of Merchant Ivory films, and I think they clashed a little bit over the look of the film and, and how it should feel. I mean, it doesn't visually look like a kind of classic King environment, I don't think. It, it does feel like uh, more like a Romero film, but it also feels of its time. It does look like a film made at that point in time. So it hasn't necessarily got the classic 80s tropes. It doesn't visually leap out as a, as a great 80s horror film because it's not, and it is a 90s horror film. Whether we get to a point where we love 90s horror films as much as we love 80s horror films, maybe we'll think <laughs> differently about it. But I think I, I, I kind of like this. I don't think, I think, as you say, I, I I think it's slightly above halfway. I, you know, I, I, it's certainly not a, a bad King adaptation by any means. It's not the best, but I, I liked it. I do like it. It's also interesting to me because he, this movie comes out like what, right before Shawshank. Yeah. Shawshank was 94 and this was 93 or was, it? yeah. So this comes out right before the, the next, like, Oh, you know, we're the next wave of, Oh, Stephen King movies can be great. And when did Needful Things come out? Needful Things must have come out around this time too. Must have been '94. But it it all you know it kind of feels in in the same uh, le- general league that movie as as uh, um, as Dark Half to me. Uh, Dark Half's a little grittier, a little grimier, you know. But it, funnily enough, you might disagree with me on this, but uh, it reminds me both the movie and the book it reminds me a lot more of Dean Koontz than it does Stephen King. Oh, no. Um, yeah, I, I know that that's horrible to say, but like I, I could like see Dark Half making a double feature with Hideaway or whatever. You know what I mean? It, like it, it has a kind of a similar, similar vibe or whatever. I see um, what you're saying. I do see what you're yeah. saying. So, but yeah, no, I mean, in terms of the cinema stuff with Shawshank and then Green Mile, like 
the nineties King was, was a lot more serious Dolores Claiborne. And you, you know what I mean? That, that seemed to be the, the more successful King where the other nineties Kings were like, you know, this movie or the mangler, or you know, the, the horror ones just didn't seem to hit. And I think you're right because it was, you know, it was filmed, I think 1990, 1991, but only came out in 93, but two years in Stephen King's, world is is a long time you know the amount of stuff that's come out in that 37 books yeah so you know it's i imagine it's coming out at a point when we've already you know seen read the book and and moved on to 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 the next one uh or two so yeah maybe it was just a you know partly a case of bad timing and um that it didn't it it didn't quite come out when it should have come out and often that's you know that can be quite I think important with the success of a film, you know, when, if, if, you know, it, it, it's difficult to know when it, a, a film will come out because you've got to kind of bring it out at the right time. And I, I would imagine that it was quite uh, immensely dispiriting to find that Orion were, you know, going out of business right at the point where they needed to, you know, <laughs> launch the Tarkov. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny thinking about it though. Um, 90 the 90s for Stephen King's more genre stuff he was finding all that success on TV that was the it miniseries that was the stand miniseries you know and to a degree the shining miniseries it's like that's where like it seemed all of his horror stuff was finding it's all uh, you know the adaptations were anyway were finding their audience you know where the big screen was was the more dramatic stuff and now they're doing a remake <clears throat> or a new adaptation anyway Alex Ross Perry is writing it and directing it and uh I think the rumor is that it's gender swapped. Have you heard that? Mm, yeah, no, I haven't like read much about it. Just that I knew that one was in the works. Yeah. Uh, oh my God. I'm blanking on her name right now. That's embarrassing. She was just in the invisible man. Oh, Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth yeah. Moss. She was yeah. in her smell. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that would be interesting to see. I would watch a, I would definitely watch like a gender swapped version of this. Elizabeth Moss in, in George Stark mode, whatever, whatever that looks like. I want a part of that. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, no, I could see that. I could see that working. You know, I, I'm all for, you know, people taking, you know, another swing at, at these, as you called it, kind of middling, you know, King adaptations. There's a lot of meat there. It's good. You know, to- I don't think you could improve upon it that much. I mean, you could do another version of the dark app. that's just straight up. But I think the only reason to redo it, because it is it is above average, would be to do something interesting with it like that. So I hope that I hope that rumor turns out to be true. I would like to see that movie. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the Romero's version is a good, solid adaptation of the book. I mean, as 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 we discussed, he's he was very keen to 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 reflect the book. Um and and any any kind of changes he made to that adaptation were, you know, were, were very cleverly done. So it, it feels like a very solid version of the book anyway. So yes, I I think, you know, uh, uh, the next version can afford to to play with that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I it didn't it didn't strike me as like, oh, well, the movie's off the mark and didn't get what was good about the book. I mean, the, the you're right, the movie is it's a solid adaptation. It it is what the book is. So, I you know, I think that Alex Ross Perry's kind of uh, his challenge is to take it further. You know what I mean? It is to to find uh to find something new to say um that that's maybe further away from a close adaptation. I think that that's probably where he's going to be able to find success if if he uh, if he does it. All right, you got a uh, you got anything else, Eric? I think that pretty much exhausts my thoughts and feelings. 
Lador Cash. Oh, I'm I'm good, man. Like uh, you know, Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. If you have anything you want to plug, feel free to feel free to, yeah, to do it. Anything uh, about that, what you're working on now? Well, that's very kind of you. I I don't have anything immediate. I've I've just done a uh, an adaptation of an M.R. James uh, story, The Ash Tree, for uh, for audio. Yeah, I'll I'll plug that. <laughs> and well, where where can people find, so find a, that, you and find that? Well, that's uh, the company is Bafflegab, and they have a website. Um, it's Baffle, Bafflegab Productions, and they do a. They've done a lot of horror film adaptations. They've done an adapt, audio adaptation of Blood on Satan's Claw, um, and also um, Hellraiser. I think they've done a, an, a, a or a. I don't know if it's a direct adaptation of the film, but it's um, it's certainly an, a hell a Hellraiser audio uh, drama, and they do a lot of Mr. James stuff. So yes. Thank you for the the opportunity to plug that. <laughs> so yes, that's that's where you can get hold of that. Well, I think that'll wrap up this episode. I really appreciate you joining us, Matthew, and uh, talking about the the not very nice guy uh, George Stark and and the uh, unfortunately named Thad Beaumont for for a good hour or so. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've, uh, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. And that was our episode on the dark half with Mister Matthew Holness. Uh, so what did you think of that one, Scott? Um, I, I love Matthew Holness, first of all. Uh, I was so excited that we got him on the show. I'm a big Garth Marenghi fan, and I'm a particularly big fan of Possum. Fucking, I, I, I'm recommending, especially to our listenership, definitely go out and see Possum. Uh, it's got Sean Harris in it. It's uh, I know we talked about this on the show, but really dark, really upsetting movie. Um, not a fun horror movie, but one of one of my favorite horror movies of the past uh, past five years, certainly. And Garth Marenghi is just a fucking classic. You know, you can't. Yeah, it's it's the best. Yeah. You can. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's kosher to say it or not, but they're all on YouTube. <laughs> so if you haven't, you know, it's been what, 15 yeah. years or so. So it's been a while. Yeah. If you run that first episode, you'll know right away if this is something you're going to want to see to the end. And uh, if you're cool like us, you'll want to see it to the end. Yeah, that's true. Well, so next week is, I would say one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded. Yes, um, absolutely. The re okay. How do I put this? Okay. So, <laughs> So we we it's are hard. diving it's back. A, it's a curveball episode. It yeah. is. We are diving back into the world of the Dark Tower. We are focusing specifically on the Gunslinger, and the reason why we're doing that is it has a particular meaning to our guest, and our guest is has a connection to King and King's world in a way that uh, very few Stephen King fans have. And it's a fascinating conversation and Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very excited for you guys to hear it and excited to announce who the guest is. Um, No one will guess this guest period (laughs) period end of story. But when you, uh, when you hear the reason why we had this person on, it is, it is by far, you know, one of the most interesting pairings of, uh, of guest and, uh, title. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, so like, like always, we'll, we, we will announce the guest uh, the Monday before the show at our Twitter page. So that is mm-hmm. at KingCast19. I don't know. I feel like I want, I'm, I'm just, I want to say more about the, the episode, but we really can't. There's not really a lot of hints you can drop without just like giving up the, giving up the goose, right? Yeah. Like, well, I, yeah, I, I think that it, it's safe to say that this isn't somebody that's involved in, any you know our previous dark tower episode had glenn mazara talking about 
you know, his show that he had, he had shot a pilot for on Amazon and then didn't get to happen. You know, it's still one of our most successful shows. It's an, it's amazing to hear from somebody associated with an mm-hmm. adaptation. Um, our guest on this next dip into the world of uh, dark tower to Midworld is not the same kind of thing, but wholly unique in, in its own right. I think that, you know, the Dark Tower, uh, and I think I can speak for both of us on this, is so special to us that, of course, we're going to do multiple Dark Tower episodes. There's going to be a lot of them probably before this thing is said and done. But every time we roll out a Dark Tower episode, it's probably going to be something special because just by the very nature of the show, in order for us to repeat a property, there's got to be a reason for it. You know, it's got to be like coming at it from a specific angle. So right. I think it's like it's for us, it's sort of like the top of the top shelf. So if you're coming to us with Dark Tower, you better have like a really unique angle on it in order for that to go through. And and this person absolutely had a <laughs> had a unique angle on uh, Dark Tower and and particularly the gunslinger. It was I was this is the first episode that we recorded where I was. This is the wrong term for what I felt, but it's the closest thing to it. Sort of starstruck to be to be talking to this person about this particular property. Then it is an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I'm not saying anything else. I'm like I'm stopping myself from saying anything else before I fucking say yeah. something I shouldn't. Yeah, for sure. But I yeah. mean, we don't want to spoil that Andy Dick is finally coming on the show to talk. About I know, I know. What if people if people found out that Andrew Bernard Richard was on this show, they'd be overcome with uh, excitement. I think. It, it, yeah, it would be the opening of a hard day's night, and we can't have that. So, uh, yeah, so we'll mm. s- see you guys next week. Uh, it's a great one. Make sure to follow us at KingCast19, and we will drop our special guest there uh, next Monday. See you then, folks. Bye. Bye.